0: Hello everyone, this is Schwab Khan here at Anti-Small Talk and today in our collaboration with Teacher Hug Radio, which, as you know, is the soundtrack to your teaching career, we've got the wonderful coach, consultant and formal pastoral lead, Katie Poole joining us. Hello Katie and welcome to Anti-Small Talk.
1: Oh, hi- hello, thank you for having me, I'm really excited to be here.
0: I think we've got such an empowering conversation here about many, many things, but before we do that, okay, you're you're a coach and I hear about coaching all the time what is in the coaching remit what does it mean because I have a rough idea of someone like with a whistle on a a football pitch shouting at kids in shorts that I'm I'm
1: assuming it's not that that is totally not that not not for me anyway Hmm. um so coaching the term originally came about because of it was the idea of like a stage coach of literally moving somebody from one place to another and the idea with coaching is that the way that I work I'm transformational coach so I work with people in the sense of holding meaningful conversations um, and those conversations take place over a period of time usually and it's a conversation where someone comes to coaching because they want to change something in their life so it's normally to do with thought patterns and behaviors that are unhelpful to them in their lives so I, I work with people around a lot of different topics for example confidence kind of work approach to work and and productivity but it's more than that it's about how they kind of manage difficult relationships in their work and in their life identifying goals and where they want to get to and uh, one of the biggest things I work with people around it is self-worth and confidence that's one of the biggest things that I see with clients I'm also working with young people at the moment as well just started to bring coaching there with them and that's very much seems to be around building self-worth and dealing with anxiety as well actually I work with a lot of educators, um, having come from that background myself. So what I'm finding with educators is it's, it's how they can exist as a whole person in the nature of the educational system that they, they're in. Because as we all know, it's an incredibly difficult system to not just to exist and function as a human. And I would say in terms of workload and the pace of it and the demands on, on individuals. So, you know, when I when I talk about coaching, my coaching is very much based in research. Um, in in psychology so you know I'm trained to really listen to the patterns of thought with somebody and as they speak I'm very much paying attention to the language that they're using any metaphors they might be using and I am trained to ask questions and those questions are very different to the type of questions we'd ask in a teaching context because I don't have the answer I do not give advice I don't give suggestions I really believe that The person I'm working with, they are the expert in their own life. They have all the answers they'll ever need. It's just about helping them to uncover for themselves what's right for them. And so when I ask a question, it's designed to promote and create new thinking rather than I'm trying to get them to see a certain thing, which is very different than in teaching, of course. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I find coaching to be one of the greatest privileges to be a part of the process and to work with somebody and almost to walk alongside them as they discover new paths for themselves.
0: I think I like that. One thing I like about what you said is that you see people as intellectual beings who have an understanding of the world around them. And I think we, we talked about this before as well, about the whole notion of unsolicited advice. I think allowing, even kids as well, young kids, allowing them to realise that, yeah, they've got a set of emotions or feelings they're going through something. We could see them as knowledgeable beings who know the world and able to process it, rather than empty shells which we're trying to fill.
1: Yeah, oh, that totally resonates to me. And I think that you know, the nature of teaching is very much about imparting knowledge and, and giving something to those, those young people. But actually, it would be lovely if we could give them space to figure out for themselves who they are, what they want, what they know about the world already from their own experience, of course. And actually what they would like to find out and you know curiosity is something that's really come up for me a lot recently actually in terms of cultivating curiosity not just for students but for teachers and, and just for, for humans really it's such an important part of our process and my mum always has said and she's quite wise really she's always said she thinks we're put on this earth to learn and obviously Um, as a teacher that's very much something that I believe but when she said that to me it wasn't so much a sense of like we learn about you know facts and figures and we learn about the people who've gone before us it's more about for me now learning about yourself and how you fit in the world and how you can have an impact on the world and the dynamics between you and other people and I just think curiosity is incredibly important and something that I love with coaching is that it Brings that curiosity to those conversations that I have. And it's about giving people an opportunity to think in a new way. And, and when I say thinking in a new way, I don't just mean think about things I haven't thought about before. It's more, especially with educators as well, and young people, I'm asking them to think about things that they don't generally get asked about. And that is almost magical to me, Like that I use that word, not kind of lightly, that it feels like there's some kind of magic. One of my, on my training course, I described it as, I was like, coaching is just like human magic. There's something that happens when we give someone the space and the time to think, actually, just to be quiet and to think, magical things happen.
0: No, definitely, definitely. I think one thing that the educational discourse right now, and I think when this comes out, people will know what I'm talking about, There's been a um, a framing of young people being born evil. How about we uh, just flip that narrative, that original sin narrative that's come out and say that no children are not born evil, they're born curious, they want to discover the world. I've got a seven, eight-year-old nephew. You put him in front of a set of books, he will find the book that he wants to read, one that resonates with him. I think we've got to look at children and young adults full stop as that, as people who are able to, who are looking for the answers, but we need to provide them the tools to find those answers as well. We're not give them the answer directly, like signpost them
1: mm, absolutely, and give them, like you say, I think that that use the word exploration. There, I think that's that's so important. About you know, n- you know, why do we want to learn things? What is it about this specific thing that's resonated for you, or you know, what is it speaking to within you? What experiences have you brought to a situation that are, sh- are shaping it? And so, yeah, it, it's interesting, and I suppose you know, as you say, the educational system is very much set up to. Follow a certain path, you know, very specific milestones and aims and goals, um you know, and, and consequences if those aren't met, you know. And so it, it takes a lot of the, you know, a lot of the kind of joy, the exploration, the curiosity, the, the adventure out of it, which is such a shame. Um, but again, that's something I've only become aware of having stepped out of it. So it's interesting, kind of looking back at my teaching career you know I've only ever been in schools either in in education either for myself or as an educator so it's quite interesting to now see it from a slightly different angle particularly with this kind of more psychological viewpoint that I'm discovering all the time it just seems to shine a new light on everything that I've ever done so yeah it's quite interesting really.
0: Definitely definitely and I remember when I was uh, teaching many many times I went to observe fellow members of staff and a child would disclose something in class and the teacher doesn't Make the time or don't have the time necessary to approach a child, talk to them, hold that dialogue, or maybe even have the training for it either. I think that's the mm-hmm. thing because, we, like you say, we are so obsessed, is the wrong word, but we're kind of infatuated, aren't we, with ticking boxes and making sure objectives are met. Sometimes, you know, taking a step back and saying, yes, this is a, a situation that needs to be attended to urgently, and then finding means and ways supporting those young people. Even adults. How many times have members of staff approached us about something that's going on in their personal lives, and we don't really know what to do because we haven't got the. I don't think this country is very good at holding conversations that really matter. Really, you know, difficult conversations. We can see that with the pandemic as well. It's tricky. It is really tricky. And I think, like you say, save even safe spaces. How do we form them? Is we have to look at the very core of teacher training, don't we? At the very early stages, our young teachers or teachers full stop prepared to facilitate these dialogues that are important. How can we make sure the social, emotional, mental health needs of students are met before they attempt enter the classroom? Because if they're not met, it's going to impact on their learning.
1: Totally. And, uh, you know, it's one, one of the key, the key things for me is, and it's no criticism of schools because, or, or educators, because actually, you know, the, the educational system that we exist in in this country as we, you know, I said before, it's got very specific goals, very specific kind of way of thinking about things. And we all exist within that. And so it's of no criticism of those who are in that system because that's the system you're in. You've got to kind of, you know, try to meet the goals of that particular philosophy and that, that kind of um, way of thinking and way of, of doing and when carrying out your role. But I think that for me, it's when I think what people don't always have is the capacity it's the capacity to handle the needs of other people as they come up in schools which un- they undoubtedly do every single hour of every single day something is going on somewhere in a school to do with social and emotional and mental health there's very little to ca- capacity to deal with that in a way that's that puts that person who needs the support front and centre because it, you know if you think about any conversation that happens between a colleague and a colleague or a student and a And a teacher, that one of those two people, if not both of them, always has somewhere else they need to be very shortly. There's a tiny window of opportunity to have a conversation before you know it's going to be cut short. And then that person gets passed on to another person, or there isn't, I mean, you think about even like the resources in a school. There's maybe no room that's private, that's quiet, that's not going to be used soon. There isn't the capacity to put cover in place to cover somebody so that they can have an hour. To, to an hour out that they might need and when you consider the speed and the pace and that kind of relentless nature of the school machine almost when a little cog in that machine kind of sticks or stops or has to or breaks there just isn't the space to be able to repair it and I just feel like something that's significant for me is creating some kind of room or space some or time in the school day and whether that's you know I know how hard it is for schools. It's a challenge with all of those things I've just said. But even if you know once a week there was a specific place, it was definitely free for anybody who needed to be out of lessons. And there was a member of trained staff there, and that was that, that all day. That's what they had to do. And had to be somebody, somewhere else. Imagine what opening up that window of space and safety could do. And so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of dyna- reasons to do, like the dynamics of the school, logistical reasons why it's very difficult to hold the space for these conversations. Imagine if all teachers from the beginning of their training, I think, first of all, were aware of what things they may have, they may have to deal with, they may come against. But all, we all had a way, a common knowledge of, well, this is what's needed and this is how you can provide and this is what we can do to help support you in that as an educator. It's a really difficult one because it depends on so many tricky factors, but I think it's vital.
0: So I I started teaching. I started a teaching career. I'd say about 2014 time. I started working as a TA in a school. We had a wonderful staff room. Within a year, it was decided that staff room needs to be used by the SEN department. So staff were fragmented, and I was unable to see colleagues that I leaned on for support leaned on me for support mm-hmm. in the early start of my, my career. You're right. I think there's so many external dynamics impact on schools. And that's why when they talk about catch up, talk about recovery curriculum, they talk about funding, even like current. There's conversation about the funding returning back to the 2010 levels. We're 10, we're 10, 11 years on from that. And by the time we reach the level, it'll be 15 years. And it's like the cost of living, the cost to facilitate per child has increased as well. It is very frustrating because we've got so much good work that goes on in schools. But to couple that up and really support young people and staff, we need the training. But with that comes the lack of funding as well. So schools are kind of like trapped between a rock and a hard place. I worked with a member of staff not long ago, Katie. He was basically the school's it was a mental health lead. And I asked him, "What formal qualifications have you got?" He said, "None, none at all." I go, "So you're making it up? Well, I'm not making it up. I'm learning as I go along." But where's your qualifications? Where's the background body of knowledge that you need to support young people? How do you know what to do? He's like, well, this is what the school have offered, and this is what I, this is this is my role, and literally no one went to see him, no students, no staff. so it was just a role simply because it had to be filled, and that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for a more more personalized conversation, a more differentiated approach, helping students and staff.
1: it always struck it struck me as you know with with um wellbeing, which is obviously this huge kind of. Focus for staff and for students, there's a there's a whole focus and rightly so on mental health and, and emotional health. But, and, but it always strikes me is you know, as a form tutor, for example, or ahead of year, you deliver a form session or form time or like an assembly for maybe 15, 20 minutes by the time you've got three notices and anything else you need to deal with, and then you say to these students, right, so this is how this is something we need to think about in terms of mental health, and you need to be aware of this. Here's how you can access support. Right, off you go. And it's it's like a very, because that's what you have to do. And it's a very compartmentalised approach. It, it's almost like here's something that you need to know about. But how far can it go beyond that when, as you say, resources are so stretched? And, and let's not forget that time is money. When we, we think about cover, we think about, you know, what it takes to take a member of staff away from the job that they're doing every day and give them the opportunity to support others in a different context that creates a cost doesn't it so yeah it's so difficult and that's why I really say this for me that it's not a criticism of schools because it's a system in which they're existing they have to currently they have to focus in the way that they are and um, I suppose it's about having a conversation about it and um, as we're doing now and just trying to bring a bit of awareness to what what happens if somebody needs a conversation in the middle of the school day when there's no room to go to there's no there's no teacher or member of staff to help them or if they do get someone to help them it causes a problem elsewhere they just there's just not the resources to to cover it and to provide that as you say that kind of differentiated support for somebody's that it's that person in front of you who needs you you've got to be somewhere <laughs> you know it's, so, it's such a difficult position to be in as well when when it's you that wants well, mo- nothing more than to help the person in front of you but you know that if you do that it's going to cause this problem for the class that are waiting for you or you know all the different ways it can come out in a school is, is very difficult.
0: No definitely and you're right about the well-being focus as well and I see tweets all the time I see things on social media all the time people talking about you know, well-being isn't about this, it's about this, it's not about offering teas and coffees in the staff room. And we need to move away from that. We need to move away from that dialogue. I think we've had that conversation already. It's kind of boring.
1: Mm. We
0: know what it isn't. We need to focus on what it is. That's the thing, you know, and for me anyway, my opinion, my my grand definition of well-being is, um, can we ask for support and help without fear of judgment or sanction? That, that, that's my definition I keep it as simple as that and uh, the rest of it falls into place you know if a member of staff needs time off to go to an appointment or go to go counselling for anything in particular to you know to go to it to see one of their children's performances at school or something like that anything small they should be allowed to do that and that flexibility that, that dialogue needs to take place but again I've really sympathised head school leaders head teachers because their hands are tied. It's it's really hard, hard to get supply teachers in with COVID now as well. It's mm-hmm. it's a difficult, difficult time to be on the front line. And my sympathy, like I speak to school leaders all the time. My current role is actually working with many school leaders. And they will tell you they want to put these provisions in place. They're really desperate to really support their staff and focus on well-being. But how do they do that? And they have to factor in other things as well, like the day-to-day running of the school, liaising with parents. You've heard about anti-vax protesters running in, arriving in schools. I, I couldn't do it. I, I have so much respect and admiration for school leaders because they've yeah. taken on the world during this pandemic, and I, the, it's it's hard to hard. There's not a one size fits all. There's not an answer. There's not one answer, is there?
1: No, and you know, I, I coach a lot of senior leaders and head teachers, and they are incredible people doing incredible things. And every single one has got the children at the heart of everything they do. Like that's just you know, it, it's really important to say that, and I think that. And this is something that I've become much more aware of, particularly speaking to other coaches who've also left education. One who is a very good friend of mine, she was a senior leader herself. And she's, you know, we we have conversations all the time. One thing I think we've both really realised is that actually it's about the system and and what what the educational system does to you as a, a member of staff is it places a lot of individual responsibility on you your, if you think about how you're scrutinised in every way as a teacher, you know your relationship, your management of behaviour, management of the classroom, you're judged through observations. And all I'm not saying any of these things are are incorrect or wrong, of course. I'm just saying that it creates a culture whereby we individualise things are going are difficult or aren't going well. And actually, as you say. You exist in a bigger system and it's not just about the individuals and the way that this system is is working. It's the way that the pressures that are put on senior leaders and educators every single day, the expectations, the workload, all of those things cause, well, they have really significant consequences, as we know from our own everyday life. The consequences, whether it's our physical health, our mental health, our relationships, the lack of time to relax and switch off and to rest. Where is rest celebrated in schools? It's just it's just not one thing I've really noticed with myself is I've come to realise just how close to burnout I have been at times of my career. And also the way that I work, I, I have worked as an educator. Now that I'm self-employed, I'm re I'm starting to recognise how unhelpful my way of working has been, this kind of glorification of. Busy, which is not my phrase. I've, I've taken up from somewhere. I think it might be a, a big, but it's this whole way of what is productivity, what is success, what does success look like for yourself, and it's very different to the the kind of way that the system was working in education. But yeah, it, it's the, the senior leaders that I coach, particularly as well. There's a real sense of I coach the whole person, so I don't just coach. I coach whoever my client is I coach around whatever they need in their own their own life so I'm frequently coaching around how what's going on in their own life is impacting on their the job that they're doing in their role in school but it's also how the role in school is having an impact on their on their life because the two things are not separate we talk about the phrase that gets me is work-life balance that implies that they are two separate things and that they should be in balance and I say should in inverted commas to how you spend your time is your life like that that just is so when we think about things like grief and loss and these difficult human emotions every single person experiences at some point in their life when you're under intense pressure in your in your workplace what happens then when when what's in your outside of your workplace kind of impacts on it because they're not separate they are two things that they're two Elements of your kind of existence, but your work is your life because that's where you're spending your time. And you think how long we're at, how long you're at work for. Of course, it's going to be a significant thing to think about. And it's how can we create spaces within that space of employment to allow people to be themselves and to ask what they need and to get the help that they need as well. So, yeah, it's a it's a really difficult one, but I think it's helpful to reframe how we see this work and life and, and well-being as you said when we if we're going to have any positive impact on on education and, and the people within our system it's about having this kind of conversation isn't it so I
0: definitely i definitely agree with what you said about uh, work life balance because it's implying the two need to be in balance no they don't no they don't I, I, i've been in that situation and also busy work you know the creation of busy work i wrote a piece for nexus ed actually about busy work and how i'd be sat there on a saturday Wake up, have breakfast. I'm just sitting down, watching TV. And because I'm worried that I'm not doing anything for my job, I'd go and create work for myself. I'd go and create a worksheet. I'd go and sit on the computer for an hour, make a PowerPoint. I'd send this email. i do this. I'd do that. Just to look busy. And that idea of looking busy, it doesn't create more productivity. If anything, it leads to burnout. And I've been on the cusp of burnout as well. In 2019, I was, I worked all half-term every day, all holidays, Christmas every single day, and it got to around about easter time in 2019 i was totally demoralized i and if that's what work-life balance is supposed to look like it's not working and there's so many colleagues who not on purpose but they would say to me oh shreb did you catch this cpd session at the weekend or did you go to this educational event or did you go to this conference we do glorify it as educators and part of me thinks i'm not blaming cpd provider because the only time they get is weekends like teacher Hug radio comes out a weekend as well to engage with your role when you should be resting, we don't celebrate rest in this country at all. We do not at all. The idea of is it eight 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 hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours of sleep. I don't know many people who have that balance that 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 ability to have that at all so which I think we're now at a place, I think, particularly in education, where this is becoming very serious. It was serious before, but it's becoming very serious. And, you know, burnout of newly qualified TS unacceptable.
1: unacceptable. I think there's a real sense of of weight of responsibility as well. I think most people who go into education go into it because... They want to make the world a better place. They want to work with the next generation. They want to care for young people and for their families. And so when you ha- hold that weight of responsibility alongside the weight of the workload, and then it's considered the pace with which we're expected to work. And then, well, the pandemic itself, of course. But then when you think about what one of the things that really kind of floored me the most during the pandemic was the way that teaching is portrayed in the media the way that teachers are spoken about the lack of respect i mean we were key workers for what like maybe three weeks where there was any kind of sense of respect and admiration and and gratitude but it didn't take long it didn't take long at all for that narrative to to kind of change and for schools to be criticized interesting i've noticed it with gps at the moment as well people again go into a profession and to care for others and to help other, other humans Yes, obviously there are problems with the system, and those GPs are copying it left, right, and centre all over the media at the moment, and, and and with and with just general the general public. Because if I think people but, but if you haven't experienced what it is to, to be an educator, to be in the NHS, to be a key worker of any kind, you don't have the understanding of how hard that can be. And, and as you say, when everything feels like it's it feels like it's got to a point where things are about to shift, and maybe I don't know hopefully in a positive way but it feels like people are at the kind of most extreme the extremes of their capabilities i suppose to to keep functioning because actually we're not we're talking about people functioning here not actually living Mm -hmm. we're not talking about people living a life as you say that that, that, i've never heard of that way of thinking about time before the the 888 if everyone had that can you imagine how how much kind of better and, and calmer and more productive in, in, and I mean that in in a sense of actually creating things we're really kind of happy with or being able to I don't know promote change in, in the world because you, it's coming from a rested place it's coming from a thoughtful place it's coming from a place of consideration like I've never heard of that before but surely I should have heard that in, the, in that concept before. I think it feels like we're at, I think you're right it feels like we're at the kind of top of a wave and it's like the, the tensions things we have been building and building and building so, something has to give because we're talking like humans. So yeah, I think it's a conversation that definitely needs to be had.
0: Of course, and I feel as though goodwill is at its is stretched. There's mm-hmm. only so many hours over time you can work for free without seeing loved ones. There's only so much you can uh, commit to and dedicate to without without burning out and saying, you know what, enough's enough. We are hitting that sort of level, aren't we? And the whole idea of mm-hmm. eight 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 is something my granddad used to talk about quite a lot, actually. He was an advocate of rest, actually, you know that. He used to come home from his days in the brickyard, spend a couple of hours just doing his thing, and then just go to bed. And and then he'd wake up and start that day again. And then he used to say to us, you know, when you're at work, leave your work at work and then come home. But as a teacher, remote learning has really blurred those boundaries between work and home. I think it's become harder. I taught during both stages, uh, both lockdowns, the national lockdowns, the school closures as well. I felt as though that after I would finished my day, sitting at the computer all day, hours on end, doing work, marking, et cetera, teaching live lessons. Well, when I was at home later in the evening, I felt obliged to send emails. I felt as though I couldn't switch off. So I think technology has that gift and that curse as well. So we've got to really factor that in. And I think I think it's at a tipping point, I really do. And you mentioned, you know, doctors, I think care homes as well in particular, they've they faced the brunt of uh, yeah, criticism throughout the pandemic as well. It just seems like everybody's facing blame apart from those who are actually at fault for it
1: and those who kind of create the policies and the structures with which in which we're operating that's not I'm not a p- particularly political person in fact sometimes I think I need to be more educated on politics and maybe more aware of the systems and again this is only a recent um, understanding for me you know as I've started to really look at the world in a different way and particularly look at education in a different way and um, I'm not political and I, and I think I probably need to be more so but this is just a general comment. It's those who create the systems within which education, healthcare, um, as you say, care for the vulnerable in society, surely they're amongst the most important roles that any anyone can hold, and they should be prized. They should be well considered. That they should be respected. They should be supported asked for what they need and I think that's one of the key things with coaching as well like there's a whole you know my training course is very much about seek first to understand and as I said to you before at the beginning I don't offer advice to people because they they are living the story of their own life they don't I don't know what their their story is I'm not them and I hold respect for that and it's about being able to to see that actually if you're not doing the job that you're in control of like in terms of you know, who, whoever creates the policies and who says this is what teachers need to do. You know, if you're not in that position, it's very, it's very easy to kind of lose sight of, well, what do, these people, what do the people who are doing the job need? What do they need? What isn't working for them? How often are, are you asked about that? It's, yeah, it's this whole thing of seek first to understand. And I think when people create the respect and the space for that, that's where real positive change could could come about.
0: No, definitely. 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 So Katie, I want to talk about something that I think is very close to both of us, uh, massively close to both of us. I think we initiated a conversation talking about grief, weren't we? Yeah. Um, This is a topic that gets people switched off. People either going to turn the volume up or turn it down. That's how it works. This sort of topic, isn't it? OK, I'll be honest with you. Until I started my teacher training, uh, my PGC in 2015, 16, I didn't care. I won't lie to you. I didn't care. I didn't. I, when you're young. You don't understand, you, you don't really, I've been to hundreds of funerals before and I used to just think in our community, in the Muslim community, there's funerals used to go on regularly throughout the week or we, most weekends there'd be a funeral or, or something like that. And I didn't really think about it because it wasn't personal to me. I had quite an arrogant view on the world. And then when we lost our granddad in 2015, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And the notion of talking about it, holding conversations about it, you know, we're go, going into six years now and even now I'm still not, an expert in any way, shape, or form, but I've found that the lack of literacy around grief, the language, the tone in which people who are grieving are spoken to, uh, that needs to change. That that needs that's a dialogue that needs to happen. And as a country, I think, particularly with the pandemic as well, human life is precious, and holding that dialogue is vital. So I think we I think we need to start venturing towards there. I think that's
1: right. I'm sorry for your loss and. When we were initially emailed I don't know if you can remember this, but you—I mentioned a student and the son of a um, colleague and a very dear friend of mine who, who we lost, and you offered me condolences. And it was only at that point that I realised it was my loss too. Yeah, I think that I was exactly the same as you. I went into te- came well, I went into teaching in 2003. I right, into education. I started off as support staff and then trained in 2005. And I do—I think. Up until that point, I'd lost grandparents. One grandparent I'd lost before I was born, so I never got to know him. I'd lost one granddad when I was 14. And then while I was teacher training, actually, I lost both my grandmothers in the space of a few months and found that really difficult. And that was the first real time it was interesting that coincided with my teacher training. Up until then, really, you know, and those losses are losses that, you know, in a way you're fortunate to have elderly grandparents you know we're not talking about the loss of a of a child for example it's it's easy to start comparing loss you know my situation's worse than that one or that one's worse than mine it's not probably a helpful conversation to have because grief and loss is relative to you so even though my grandpa- grandparents had lived a long life I don't know just they've been on this they've seen their children grow up and everything there's no tragic loss I suppose in my life But those losses are with me even today. And that was back in 2005. And to the point where, you know, I don't mind sharing this, that I've been known to, um, I'm very aware of my grandparents all the time. I've lost all four of them now. I think about them all the time. Like I'm surrounded by their possessions in my house, and particularly in this room where I work. But I'm not ashamed to say that I've been known to be in a particular supermarket that always reminds me of one of my, like, sets of grandparents. And it was at Christmas. And I was in the i I was in the aisle where they sell like you know like birds trifle and, and jelly packets and things you know like the dessert section, and the, it was nearly Christmas and Have yourself a merry little Christmas came on, and I just started crying in that aisle of the supermarket because. That bird's trifle packet, that aisle of the supermarket, always associated with my grandparents. They'd always have those kind of treats in their house and we were never allowed to have them. And just, I've always found that piece of music and something about it. Music just, for me, is like an emo- a highly emotional thing. And it just triggered the loss of them. And I just felt so incredibly sad that I would never see them again, but also grateful to have had them. And when I started teaching, I did not have that understanding at all. And I think that when you are... In a school community, it's very different than other places of employment. My husband works in finance in a very corporate environment. And I've said this to him before, you know, when you're in a school community, my first school I was in for 16 years of my life it was very much, I was firmly embedded in that place, in that community, in the history of that place. And the number of losses we experienced while I was there. If you were told me I was teacher training, you know, and i just lost my grandparents' you're about to see a whole range of of loss of human life in one form or another. I wouldn't have understood it but when I became a pastoral leader that was when it really brought it home because I was the one not just witnessing it but dealing with it so whether it was losing colleagues many parents and grandparents lost of of, uh, students I was was working with and loss of past students and loss of students that were about to come to our school as well and so I think that you know, I've seen all four, I've, I've experienced, and I've seen a lot of loss. And I think any educator does, probably more so in certain roles. So senior leaders and pastoral leaders particularly, I would say. But there isn't a conversation around that at any point of your training or at any point of your school career. Well, there hasn't been for me. Um, it's just something I've understood for myself and I've processed myself. I think when you see such a range of loss and, and the impacts and consequences of that loss, that shapes who you are, like it has for me. It's definitely shaped who I am. And as you say, you know, grief isn't really talked about. There's almost a bit of um. Previously, I've I felt there's been a bit of shame attached to grief, and absolutely there shouldn't be because grief is one of the most human things we can go through, and it's not just about death either. Of course, it's about all the losses that we can experience in our life and. Yeah, I think it's incredibly important that we start to bring this into the light. It almost feels like it's a way of honouring the human experience more so by bringing it into the light. And it's hard, you know, facing grief and loss is difficult, but it's that vulnerability that you need to, to be able to be in possession of in order to be able to have conversations like this. It's about embracing that, even though it's difficult. And so the more that people are open about it, the more we bring it into, like you say, for teachers young in the career, into CPD, the better.
0: It just hit me, as I was thinking, what, is, what does grief actually mean? I just refer to it as the endless cost of love. And I think we're all counting that cost all the time as well. And I've held conversations with people about it and close friends, family members, it's a different type of hurt when they don't understand. It's a very different type of hurt. And because you expect them to understand. And I've had moments and situations where, like you um, just talking to someone and just randomly, you know, something will happen and it hits you. You know, granddad's not around at the minute. Like I would have run that by him before I spoke to you about it. Or just small things. And then there's also the regrets of, you know, um, maybe I wasn't there for them at the time. Uh, maybe I could have done this. Maybe I could have done that differently. And there's a guilt that comes with talking about it. You feel really guilty because you feel as though you're, Unloading on someone who's probably not got the capacity to deal with it, and then there's that notion of venting and dumping, isn't there? Like, are we we've got to be very careful who we talk to about our, our our issues because not everyone has the emotional capacity to deal with them. So it is really hard to find safe spaces, and I think schools have, particularly with the COVID now as well, where people are losing parents, grandparents. Children are even dying as well. I think I think in Britain in particular, there's very much this keep calm and carry on. We'll go to the Winchester, watch it blow over, and that'll be it. I think there's more. We've got to face the issue as it is there and then. It's a part of life and embedding that literacy. So when people do have issues or they are struggling, we can signpost or we can support them. So rather than being silent, I think silence doesn't work with loss. I think it's, I've lost a lot of really good friends because they don't know how to support me. And then I've just thought, you know what? This is kind of one-way traffic, and I'm making all the effort, and I'm sad, and you're not listening, so I just walk away from it. So, again, it's um, it's an experience you have to have from suffering it first, if that makes any sense.
1: Yeah, and I think that you know sadness, which is just one emotion. As you you mentioned guilt there, and regret might be another. Um, resentment, anger. I mean, these are all. You know, there's the there's the um, Kubla Ross grief the kind of things on that denial anger bargaining which guilt can come into depression and acceptance and there's there's so many different emotions that come about with with grief um, and loss and actually when we talk about that that curve it used to be known as a cycle but it kind of falsely gave the impression that you would move through each stage in a linear fashion and you come out the other side of it and and I think there's that misunderstanding of, of grief that it's something you go through for a short intense period of time then you come out of it and actually that's not how it works at all um, it's it's quite hard I think when you haven't well I don't know if it's whether you haven't been in it or maybe it's when you haven't been in it for a period of time or maybe it's when you are also involved in something else that's going on for you in your own life it can be quite hard to know the right thing to say or the right thing to do and often The right thing, even that calling it the right thing implies there is a right thing. We, you know, there is no one way of dealing with somebody else's grief because it's such an intensely personal thing that I think challenges everything that you believe and hold true about the world. So it's, yeah, it's not about finding one specific thing to offer or one specific thing to say. I think it's about giving people just space to feel what they need to feel because I think you're right. I think culturally in this country. And when I say in this country, I really mean Britain, I think. I think that's what I mean. Yeah. Um just because I was thinking of um I know I know quite a few people who are Irish. They have a very different way of talking about death and their perception of death. I actually feel like it's a lot more healthy. At first it's a bit shocking to hear them talking about bringing you know the people they've lost into their homes and sitting with them overnight is part of the, the kind of tradition. And, and actually learning about other cultures' approach to, to loss and to grief has helped me to understand it more for myself, it as, just as a person, because it helps you to see how much of our response to grief is cultural. And I think you're absolutely right that certainly I've never grown up with an awareness of you know, openly talking about grief and bringing it into... A conversation and there's a lot of shame about it there's a lot of worrying about doing the wrong thing again in inverted commas because I don't know it's very easy to, to be so scared of saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing that you say nothing at all and I, I've been in that position before I haven't quite known what to say to somebody mm. whether that's when they've been really poorly or they've lost somebody and so I've to keep myself probably and then say I've not said anything but actually, I've learned over time as I've got older, I'd always rather say something and risk saying something that's not helpful to them than say nothing at all. And that's just something for me personally that I've, a choice I've made. But, yeah, it's, I think culture has a lot to do with it. And it, I think it's the more the more we can learn about it and talk about it, the better it would be for everybody.
0: Mm. No, definitely. One of the things that I've always been keen on, particularly on teacher hug as well, is these conversations that matter are really important. And we've got to honor, you know, we've got to honor people's lives. And I, I don't want people to think that uh, when I when I passed away, I don't want people to forget about me. No, I want to be honored, I want to be remembered. In particular, in COVID, as that like kind of anonymized it all. That's very frustrating. that's very hard to take as well. I'm due to go to the COVID Memorial Ward. I know. Once this is over and in inverted commas, that wall will be replaced. It'll be painted over with something else. We haven't got that. We don't, we don't allow people to sit with their grief. And I think Caroline Biddle said that on my previous podcast about fertility and teaching. We don't allow people to sit there, process it, understand it, and at their own pace. We're so keen. Like Even when I, uh, I asked Grandad, the place that I did in my teacher training, the um, second placement, they wanted me back within a week. I was back within a week, but was I in a good place? Absolutely not. So there's arbitrary deadlines and timelines that yeah. are set when it comes to loss. And you feel guilty if you're not got better after a week or after two weeks. You know, it's a lifelong process. You know, that, that that person's been with us our entire lives. Or for many, many people, that loss is so significant. And the gravity of it is not met by other people. It's hard. It's really hard. I won't lie. You know, um, And music does work. I think music does help. Writing does help. It's a strange emotion as well, Katie, because it makes you connect with people. This is how this conversation started. I would never have initiated this conversation. Even, like, you can see grief in people. You can see it in their eyes. You can hear it in their voice. It's it's a very strange emotion. So our listeners will be thinking, some of them who have, have experienced it, they will realise that you can spot a griever from a mile off, which is something I, in 2015, I never knew existed. So I'm learning every day as well.
1: Mm, I think that it's interesting, you know, because... Um, I, uh, yeah it, when because initially we we got in touch didn't we because you you tweeted about there should be grief like better literacy around grief and I, and I responded to that it spoke to something within me because it's something that's very much come to my understanding that you know I can look back and see all the losses that I've seen others experience and felt myself and then how they have had an impact on on how I see the world and when you see people that you care about massively lose their children, um, that affects how I am as a parent. It just, it just has shaped my, my worldview, my awareness, my the depth to which I think about things, sometimes that, that can cause me difficulty. You know, I can be more anxious about things than maybe I would have been had I not experienced that. But taking a layer off, you know, when we talk about things like as human and as vulnerable as grief and loss. It's like taking a layer off and being prepared to go that bit deeper. It For me, when I think back to uh, my teaching and, and the times when grief has come to the service of students, particularly when, uh, it's when in a lesson I you was know, an English teacher, I might look at a text that particularly touched on it. So a poem or um, a piece of writing that particularly talked about something that just touched that nerve for them and it exposed that. That grief, and I don't know if you've heard there's a quote, um, it's quite well known about grief being like glitter. I don't know who said it, but it's like a grief like glitter, and just when you think you've kind of cleaned it all up, you'll find a little piece of it somewhere. Even months down the line, you can find glitter, and and it's just so accurate. And, and I've seen it just open literature, music, open seems to to bring it to the surface. Um, and it's just yeah, it just. The pace of schools, unfortunately, does not allow the space for issues. It's almost like it needs to open up. It needs to breathe. People need to rest. People need to ex- feel what they feel and be able to accept what they feel. And ha- that's what will help them process it. It's not about trying to just let go of it. It's about trying to accept the feeling of it. Mm. And, you know, I'm not a therapist. I'm, I'm a coach, which is, is very different. And ethically, you know, I would always, have, I would, if someone came to me to work with me, if what they actually needed was therapy, which I always ascertain with somebody, I will always kind of signpost them to, to someone who is trained and, and can help with that. But I think therapy is massively important. And even if you think about that in a school, how long it takes for students to get support, um, or, or a member of staff, or in fact anyone in society at the moment trying to get um, therapeutic help the wait times are just incredible and yeah as uh, with a pandemic and, and you know the wall that you're talking about the covid war was all the hearts on it i've seen it and i've struggled to get my head around it you know i've looked at that image a few times to trying to gra- grasp the gravity of the numbers and i don't know if it's possible to do that and i think it was um it could have been the new york times there was an american news outlet that a few months back, I'm sure if you Googled it, you'd find it, had started to publish the individual stories of the people that have been lost to COVID. I think they took a 1,000 people and they printed on the front page, I'm sure it was in the New York Times, It's something like that, and they printed a little snippet of those people's lives. It is one of the most, one of the most devastating things I've read because what that did was it turned those numbers into stories and like, as humans, we naturally respond, our brains respond to story because that's making connection of a human. Mm. And turning the number to a story, or oh, it's a one thing, well not the one thing, but the, one of the major thing that's kind of broken me, me to feel the grief, was to see the stories of, of the people behind the numbers. And I would encourage anyone to try and find it. I'll see if I can, can find the reference for you. It was just, it was beautiful, it was heartbreaking. I also think, for me, it felt necessary to know a little bit about what was behind the numbers.
0: Just hearing from people, I I, sp- I spoke to Jo Gooding not long ago, and she's uh, tried to campaign for a public inquiry into the government's handling of the, the pandemic, and she lost her dad, and the way she spoke about it, both online and also um, in the interview, I think it was ITV, it made me put myself in that position, and it made me realise that there's so much suffering going on in the world, Let's try and be part of the healing process. If COVID didn't exist, those people wouldn't have died. That's how we have to look at it. So it's is, it is, it's a conversation we need to have. And also, Katie, one thing that you and I both spoke about initially was the whole dif- di- differentiation between loss and grief are very different, aren't they? There's a differentiation yeah. there, isn't there? So losing a loved one and losing your job, there is a grief with both, and they both need to be understood, losing a friend and losing a loved one. Like grief is not always just about death, is it?
1: no no and I think that's something that again isn't talked about enough and it's this whole thing of like comparison to other other people's stories and it can be quite difficult to think about it but there's the grief of losing somebody that you love but then you can experience you know I talked about the Kubler-Ross grief curve you can experience the same emotions on that through loss of anything in your life and the way I understand it to be is it's any change that means you've lost something that you haven't been in full control of. And I think that's interesting to think about because, I mean, for me, I've experienced loss, maybe not grief, I would say, maybe more loss. They're very different experiences where it's going through this process where it brings a lot of emotions to the surface. But also, you know, in my life, in terms of um, medical situations, I've experienced a couple of medical situations that have resulted in feelings of loss for me. And so it's and yeah at the time I didn't understand why I was reacting so emotionally to them. Um you know to, to do like an operation for example. But then when I understood that actually you can if you if there's a change that comes into your life that is not totally under your control, that maybe isn't totally a positive thing, it's okay for you to still feel emotions, difficult emotions, vulnerability, and also under I think understanding that actually what you may be experiencing is some of this loss and grief can be incredibly helpful. I know in my situation I did not I kept saying things like why am I crying about this or what is it about that that's bothered me so much and why can't why can't I just let it go? These are some of the questions I've asked myself before particularly like the medical situations like why am I so bothered about this when, when it's fine it's dealt with but it's only when I started to kind of understand more about grief and loss that now I'm able to say, I feel sad about this. And this is why I feel sad about it, because it's loss. And that helps me to be able to label those emotions and those thoughts. It helps me feel to kind of process it a bit quicker. And as I said, this kind of grief curve is you go through the, the kind of steps, not in a linear fashion. You can experience some of them, all of them. It doesn't have to be in a particular order. It's not a case that something you're okay forevermore. It's just about different things will take you really through different stages. And so for me, when I'm in a stage of it, I can now go, it's okay. You know, it's not just about my grandparents now at the supermarket. I can say, it's okay. I'm experiencing grief, I'm experiencing loss. And that helps me massively. And I think if more people understood that, it could only be a positive thing.
0: No, definitely, definitely, definitely. No, Katie, it's absolutely brilliant speaking to you. We've got, we've covered so much ground, haven't we? I feel as though this could be a two-parter. This could definitely be a two-parter. No, uh, but Katie, I'm really keen to signpost people towards you and your work So I think you're doing some incredible things and the empathy and understanding you have of the profession, looking from outside also, looking in as well, it's incredible. So, Katie, where can our guests, where can our audience find you? Oh,
1: thank you. Um, So, yeah, I mean... Uh, any social media at the moment you can find me it's Pool coaching um, and some on twitter facebook instagram and linkedin linkedin's a really good one to kind of find me on as well in terms of my coaching work specifically but there will my website's in development that's www.katiepoolcoaching.com it's the first time i've said that to anyone (laughs) it's in (laughs) development at the moment yeah be lovely to, to speak to other people i think you're the conversations that you have, I think, are so important. Even the whole name of your podcast, like I love, and some of the ones I've listened to, it's that it's such an important you You are all about meaningful conversation, as am I. You know, I think that words have the power to change people's lives, whether it's something that they've heard, they've read, or they've written themselves. So, I teach, for example, a lot in journaling for self discovery, that's a massively important process. So, I think that what you're doing is fantastic, and you give people a space to. Share some of the, their deeper understandings as a human. And I think that the people who listen to it will only have a benefit. So, yeah, thank you for all that you do as well.